Okay, the, the book of James is continuing on. Uh, you have the text there for you. Um, Nathaniel and I were commenting just this week on how much we love the book of James. Uh, I don't know, we're getting a feel for, for his preaching style. He, he's, he's pretty clear, I think, in what he says. Uh, often when we're up here preaching, we are not just trying to explain the text, but sort of explain why the text is, is written What's going on in the original audience? What would, what's going on that would make this kind of subject be of importance? So um, we're going to investigate today uh, this text here in uh, James 2, uh, 14 through 26, in just a brief time. And uh, I want to suggest to you that uh, it's a text, again, pushing the idea of wholeness, of completeness, of integration in, in the Christian life, if those are words that, that make sense for you. When you think of certain personalities, certain people, I think you're going to quickly associate um, something with them that they did with their whole being, their whole, their whole self, uh, someone like a uh, LeBron James, uh, Michael Jordan, think of sports uh, basketball stars. Uh, I was reflecting this week on Amelia Earhart, uh, the first woman who uh, crossed the Atlantic, uh, actually the second person solo to do it, 1932. Um, what does she associate with? Well, flying adventures and uh, uh, always associated with, with, uh, with a fascination with, with airplanes. Think, think of Steve, Stephen Jobs. I think you get the idea. Uh, famous people are associated because their passions uh, shape their very lives. And that's a popular thing, isn't it? It really, we have a couple of, couple of storylines, perhaps two in, in, the, in the world. Uh, we have the storyline of, of follow your heart, a popular follow your heart. Uh, follow your heart, every, and, and wherever, you lead, wherever it leads, it will be well with you. You'll experience wholeness. You'll experience, uh, if you follow your, your, your passions, you will experience some sense of completeness, right? That's a kind of a popular idea. Zig Ziglar is a popular uh, motivational speaker, uh, writer, um, and he has written, the chief cause of failure and unhappiness is trading what you want most for what you want right now. So uh, keep what you want most in the forefront. And you know what we see? We see people uh, successful at this, actually. So if you commit yourself to pursuing your dreams, uh, you can win uh, Wimbledon, perhaps, a uh, tennis championship. You, you can uh, become uh, someone of, of significance, uh, distinguish yourself. And we'd say, hey, that's, uh, at one level, that's a, that's a great thing to do. Great. But beyond that, or be, underneath that, is a storyline, uh, a way of, of pursuing something for, for certain reasons. And the Bible comes along with a storyline and says, well, Here's how you actually find completeness. Here's how you find a wholeness to your life. And so this text is really showing us where Pastor James is, is preaching away. That faith is this dynamic thing. Faith is, is the integration point for our life. So what happens on Sunday, and you probably hear this quite a bit in church, uh, what happens on Sunday, we want to make sure it happens on Monday as well, right? So there's a wholeness being spoken about here. And I want, you to, I want it to be very clear to you that 
uh, as we get together as a church, we're, we're actually after the power. Uh, we're actually after the, something deeper that's motivating us to do what is right, do, to do what is good, and to figure out why we, we don't do it, and to figure out what does faith look like. In fact, if you want an early application to this sermon right away, um, even while we're having lunch after uh, the service today, you might ask this question to yourself, even while you're just hanging around uh, church folks, what does faith look like right now? Um, who should you talk to? Who should you move toward? Uh, what does faith look like right now? I ask that for myself as I go through my week. What does faith look like right now as an integrating point? Of course, we're inconsistent in this. But James is actually observing some unusual things in the people he has hung around with, in the, in the church he has pastored there in Jerusalem, and he is observing that there's actually a camp of people who are saying, I have faith alone. Uh, and verse 18 actually says, and someone will say, so that, hear that phrase, someone will say. So in, in, in church groups, they were forming sort of different camps, and some were actually saying, look, I've got faith, and it's okay that it is by itself. Now, as Protestants, we like the idea that uh, faith is alone. That is actually something that comes out of the Reformation. We believe in uh, salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, and you can even add the scriptures, through the scriptures alone. We like these words with alone in them. These are actually vitally important. We do not want to mix some sort of religious righteousness with faith, kind of mix this all up together, and then somehow figure at some point in the future, if we've done enough of this sort of cooperating with God's grace and we've tried, at some point we will be justified, declared righteous before God. We, uh, in the Reformation faith, reject that. That is only through faith in Christ alone that we are justified. So we like these alones. We like faith alone. So when James comes along and says that Abraham, in this text, was justified by his works, we want to, these are like, whoa, explain that to me, as if something is being presented that is contradictory to Scripture. So we're gonna, we will explore that. But real saving faith is vitally active, and some have figured out a way to think of faith as separated from the whole of their lives. Faith separated from the whole of their lives. Living in Michigan, we heard lots of stories about the uh, auto industry there. Uh, we lived in West Michigan. The auto industry is over there in East, East Michigan. And uh, uh, one story, don't know if it's true, but the story of a, of a, a Ford worker had worked at Ford, Ford cars, built Ford cars for 30 years, and uh, some young man drives up on the driveway of his house to date this man's daughter or go take his daughter out on a date, and he pulls up in a Chevy, a General Motors car, and he comes out to greet this young man and says, young man, I've worked for Ford for 30 years, and never once has there been a Chevy on my driveway. Would you please get it off my driveway? Don't know if that's true. That is a sort of an urban legend story there. But there's a man 
He works for Ford. He drives Fords, right? And uh, we're always disturbed if in the church or, or, or in our own lives we sense, you know what, I, I, I sell Fords, but I drive a Chevy, right? Uh, there's always this sort of sense of ga- a gap in our life, and we sense it. But God is committed to this oneness in our life. For instance, even back in the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah 32, we hear these words, I will give them one heart. Ezekiel eleven eighteen, and I will give them, listen to this, singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. In other words, there is something about us that resists this wholeness. And God has to take the initiative to put his spirit within us, and something is underway from that point on. What we say and profess on Sunday morning, God is committed to integrating into our life. So, lest you be overly burdened with what you ought to do, may you know that God has taken the initiative to give you faith, to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and already at work inside you is the God you are believing in, and he is working inside you to bring about greater integration. So be, be encouraged. Now, hopefully that, that foundation and gospel will help you receive James's uh, exhortations because he is right to the point, uh, and he is speaking to, first of all, I would say, people who are caught up when the heart, mind, and life are divided. That's the first point. Verses 14 through 20. Let me just read this to you. It, it, all, it almost preaches by itself, I would say. Verse 14. But good, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then here is the key passage of the whole text. Can that faith save him? Illustration, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Summary point here, a summary point, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So somehow, in some way, in James's experience with church folks, they had figured out that they could see someone's need, particularly in the church. Someone is not uh, well-clothed or they don't have food. And some in the church, they'd figured out a way to just bless them with words. And James is saying, Christianity is not just words. Christianity is not words. Words and actions. Words and actions together. So it's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple. That little passage there, pretty straightforward, right up front. And uh, James is now challenging this deep compartmentalization, right? Uh, I can honestly say uh, that I've, uh, in hearing people's feedback about their faith, about the struggle of the Christian life, the, the term or idea compartmentalization really does touch people's hearts. They, we are all sort of painfully aware of this, this inconsistency. And so James is, is driving home his point don't come up with a theology that says your faith can be and stand alone. 
verse 18 now. Take a look at verse 18. But someone will say, and here's another quote, you have faith and I have works. Show me, and then James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Another key concept here in this passage. So let me just share with you really what's happening here is that some people were coming along and they were doing this. I have the gift of faith. You have the gift of mercy. You have the gift of helps. You have the gift of leadership. You see, God has given us all uh, a deposit of grace, and it's all kind of specified as you have that, and you have this, and right? No, the I have faith crowd is saying, you see, it's a specialized gift. Specialized gift. Uh, I have the gift of doing nothing. Okay, so, so James is now, what he's doing now is he gonna, he's going to set this up and say, huh, okay, let's see if this is true. Is that how God does? Because God does give gifts to the church, it's true. There actually is the gift of faith in the church. So this is an extraordinary person who God's gifted, this extraordinary gift that God has gifted that person with, and they just believe much more strongly than the rest of us. So James comes along and says, wait a minute. Is the gift of faith some specialized thing? And here's how he illustrates it with demons. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. You're a monotheist. And then he says, you do well. Even the demons, even the demons believe. And notice this. They have some level of faith functioning in them. Or some level of truth, it might be more precise to say. And here's what happens when they perceive something rightly about God. Imagine the demons doing this. They shudder. They're aware of God's magnificence, and it does something in them. The point is, is that faith is not some private little personal thing that a few of us experience. Even uh, faith is, the response of faith is like demons understanding some aspect of God's being. That makes sense. So, this is essentially this idea that a person is coming to the conclusion that I can have my own compartmentalized uh, Christian something that has no connection with the outside world. It's just sort of my own way of living the Christian life. It has been described as nominalism, Christian nominalism. If you have ever read Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the, the Danish philosopher, he was being driven batty and crazy with Christian nominalism. This meant, for his observation, was that Christians were just moving in large crowds, uh, ex- accepting things because they just were sort of what people did in their time. It was just how they belonged. They did what their family did. They did what their parents did. And he was driving people to faith in a vibrant, personal way. So, the American South in particular, I hear so many comments. I, I've only visited the South. and well, I've lived in Florida, but that doesn't quite count, right? Those of you in the South, you know, it doesn't count. So, um, the American South, though, has a kind of reputation for going to church but then there is this disconnect, right? 
I don't need to mean to throw stones at one particular region of our country, but many people are observing, especially if they come out of this Christian nominalism, they're aware that it was simply a way of belonging. This is what my family does. This is sort of what you do on, where are you going to be at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning? You're not, you're not going to be in church. You're going to be in trouble, right? And by the way, it's a great time to travel. There's no one's on the roads, by the way. So, it may be possible that some here today are sort of accepting this sort of generic, sort of a distant view of God. You're not really striving or trying or thinking about integrating your Christian life. One of the ways you can sort of tell if you're at least striving is the questions you ask. The questions you're asking of your Bible you're trying to make this more real and more consistent in your life, what are the questions that you are coming up with? And there should be a lot of questions. How do I apply this? How do I live this out? What's the best way to approach this? Some of us, I think this is probably true for all of us, in some way or another, are actually resisting this integration of our lives. And there's a comfort to it. I think the, the I am of faith alone crowd has figured out that this is a much more comfortable way. I've been getting involved with some poor person, someone who needs help. Getting involved in people's lives is kind of messy. And so they figured out a theological way of living and uh, to try to justify not being engaged. Uh, verse 20 of James chapter 2. Listen to this. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And I think uh, the scripture would have us feel the uselessness of that uh, perspective today. And then just secondly, uh, not only this dividedness, but now there's much more of a hopeful presentation here in James. And that is it comes from the life of Abraham, James 2.21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, verse 22, here's a a summary statement. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Now, The statement that Abraham was justified by his works needs some explanation. Abraham starts in Genesis 12, the story of his life. Some of the highlights are found in Genesis 15 when God encounters uh, Abraham and ratifies a covenant. There's a covenant-making ceremony in Genesis 15. Abraham is there present. He actually sleeps through most of it. But uh, when he wakes, he believes upon God. He, Genesis 15, 6 declares that Abraham believed on God and he was declared justified. Quite a remarkable text. When we think about people being saved in our Bibles, the way people are saved in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same. By faith, through grace, or by grace, through faith. So... James is talking about the maturing of Abraham's faith and that it's as if we're we're having 
we're sort of joining in with God as he observes the time elapsing in Abraham's faith. It's maturing, it's growing. And as Abraham has now a massive test, this son he loves, the son of promise, Isaac, he's actually commanded to offer his son on an altar. This takes place in Genesis 22. And the Bible tells us very clearly in James that through this action of faith, Abraham was justified, or his faith was declared the real deal. That's how we should understand that. So, Abraham's faith was alive. It was no dead faith. In fact, Hebrews 11.19 tells us this. This is the Hall of Fame of Faith in the the New Testament book of Hebrews. It tells us of Abraham that he believed as he was offering his son, he believed that God could raise him from the dead. That was, I mean, that is extraordinary faith. So, faith that is alone is self-delusional. No one in the Bible who has real faith is passive. No one in the Bible who has real faith uh, is just left alone without any evidence of it. So, we could illustrate this, this beautiful passage in uh, Luke 7, where Jesus is with uh, a Pharisee named Simon, and uh, there's a woman who is there adoring Jesus because she is aware that she has been forgiven her sins, and she is uh, wiping the feet of Jesus with, uh, with her tears, and uh, Jesus declares to her, this is Luke seven forty seven. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. It isn't that her love earned her salvation, but her love was an evidence that she was believing in Jesus for salvation. So, Abraham is a beautiful picture of one whose faith was active and real. Now, um, I think the next area, and I'll cover this briefly, is I really think what's going on in this passage is that James is addressing people who are fearful. I think that's what's going on. And I think that uh, Abraham uh, is a good illustration of faith that has matured. And then then James moves to someone who might be quite surprising to us. Um, Not someone of perhaps noble stature like Abraham and such an important person, but actually a person who just really uh, occupies a small slice of the Bible. And this is from Joshua 2 with Rahab, uh, the prostitute, who realizes that Jericho, her her home, fortress town, city, is going to be the object of God's wrath. And she knows the story of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. She embraces this God, believes upon Yahweh, and evidence of her faith is to supply shelter for the spies and to give them guidance on how to get out out of there Without being, without being caught. Verse 25. This looks like faith that is overcoming fear. And notice the integration of life in, with Rahab. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
What this means, justified by works, means again that her faith matured. It was declared the real deal by her actions. Abraham put forth what was precious to him. Rahab does the same thing. Her life was precious to her. Her family's life was precious to her. And she puts that on the line. Again, all of us really have a couple of ways where we're being shown, or at least two paths, to come alive. The one area is to follow your passions and your dreams. Achieve something special. Seize the moment. Follow your heart. Be all in. And you will be fulfilled and you will be whole. But notice, these pa- notice this passage. Do you know that Abraham was well on his way to an integrated life? He had struggles. Rahab was catching on to the big picture of life, that God was in charge of the great story of the world. And her, her embracing of this, this God was central to her recovery as a human being. She became alive. She saw a big God. She saw a big Savior. And we are called to see a big God and a big Savior as well. When we think about Jesus, think about the rich stories we have of his life and his care for people. We think of his passion, his desire, his desire for us, the lost, his willingness to grow his disciples and be patient with them as they stumbled and, and, and tried to express faith. And as their faith matures, don't you see something extraordinary in the book of Acts? See, our God is willing to grow us. And he does it by actually having his son embodied in our very lives. So uh, I'm with you in this struggle. Sometimes our faith feels feeble, doesn't it? And that's why we have the Lord's table, uh, where we cry out, move me beyond mere words with my life. Cry out, help me, Lord, embody what is difficult and hard and messy. May we actually in our lives find greater and greater integration where our faith is being demonstrated in a a new life, an embodied life. Let's pray.